Welcome to this podcast by City Point Church, Redcliffe. We are so happy you could join us and pray that the following message will encourage and empower you. But it's awesome to talk to you guys today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real privilege and an honor. Um, I've been asked to do a testimony, so it's not so much in terms of teaching today. It's definitely not preaching. I haven't got a clue how to preach, so it's kind of a teach but it's all about testimony, and I don't like giving my testimony because I have to tell you how bad and evil I've been, um, but it has a good ending, okay, because God has a redemptive heart, so I don't want you to condemn me until we get to the end, all right? It ends well. Um, I did a, a testimony for a large denominational group once in Caloundra, and they invited me. I never, ever volunteer for public speaking, ever, and they invited me, and at the end of it, I took questions, and one, one guy got up, and he said, I don't even know why we let you into our country, because he came in as, a, as an immigrant. <laughs> and I said, how long have you been a Christian? He said, about 35 years. I said, have you heard of forgiveness? <laughs> do they teach that in your church? <laughs> oh, dear. And that's why they prayed that song, Amazing Grace. I think it was aimed at me this morning. All right, so I grew up in Zambia, which is in southern central Africa, about one country below the equator. And I grew up as a white black kid. So I literally gravitated straight to the black kids. I don't know why, there's plenty of white kids around, but I loved the bush and the black kids lived in the bush, so I just gravitated to them. And I learned everything that they knew and I learned the bush and how to track and trap and make fire and make string and all the stuff that I wanted to learn from them. And my, I didn't even speak English, okay? My first language was Bemba and my second language was English and it was a broken English anyway. So that was during the 1950s. As you can see, I still tuck my shirt in. I'm an old fossil, like uh, you young studs can leave yours out for some reason. So anyway, back in the late uh, 50s and early 60s, the independence movements were sweeping south across Africa. British were decolonizing under pressure from the United States and so on, just a legacy of World War II. And my parents were worried about all the bloodshed and so on, so they sent me to boarding school in South Africa. Can I have that map of Africa, guys? I should have brought my own one, but I forgot. I don't have a memory. Anyway, point being, I got sent to boarding school when I was four years old. And this is where we lived in Zambia. And I got sent to boarding school over here in King Williamstown in South Africa, in the Cape. So that was a journey of about 3,000 kilometers. And it was on a train, okay, across four countries. Old steam train took 10 days to get to school and 10 days to come back completely unescorted. Some of those countries were hostile to white kids. Okay, so you can imagine a four-year-old getting stuck on a train. I don't understand independence movements and, and all that sort of stuff. So I'm off to boarding school. See you in June, dude. Bye. That kind of, with a teddy bear, I saw a picture that Dan was referring to last night. The teddy bear was bigger than me. And that got confiscated as soon as I got there anyway. So it was a, you know, when I got to South Africa, um, I went to go and find the, white ki the black kids, and they all ran away because it was at the height of the apartheid movement. Um, and of course, the white kids beat me up for talking to the black kids. So there I was in South Africa, stranded, couldn't speak English, couldn't speak Afrikaans, couldn't speak Klausa, and they ran away anyway. All I could speak was Bemba, and to my mind, my parents had rejected me because you don't understand anything at that age. And everyone's, you know, beating my brains out. So it was, I grew up with incredible sense of rejection, all right? And it carried on throughout my school years. It was, it was a, a complete, if you like. But eventually, I kind of changed my attitude, and I, and I decided that I would um, get them all back, 
that, that was I wanted to retaliate, and even to my parents and so on. So I just to set out to prove myself at everything I could ever do. And as you can see, I'm just only a little hobbit, skinny little dude, but the determination was massive. And so I just took off, and I ended up learning how to fight, learning how to defend myself, beating them up ultimately, and then becoming a leader in the school and getting promoted to the prefect of the, the, the house and all that kind of stuff. So I won their respect just because of the rejection. But the rejection was still there. Eventually, my parents left Zambia. They moved to the next country south, which has disappeared, continental drift. Okay, <laughs> here it is here. That was called Rhodesia in those days. My parents moved down there, and they shacked up in Rhodesia. So I was coming home on the train from boarding school, and uh, the train stopped in Rhodesia. My parents said, hey, this is where we live now. So I said, okay, sweet. So we lived there, and I got sent to boarding school in Rhodesia. So first thing for me, we lived on a farm. It was a prison farm. was to go and learn the local language, which was Shona. And I became fluent in Shona, and I learned the Rhodesian bush, which was very similar to the Zambian bush. And this is important, the reason I'm telling you this. It all kind of adds up in the end. Okay, so in 1965, Rhodesia declared independence from the UK illegally, in, the, in their mind, legally in my mind, but in their mind illegally. So they put sanctions against us. They blockaded the ports that we were using in Mozambique, and all the neighboring countries declared war on us, except South Africa, and they were called the frontline states. So my, school, my, my years at high school were during a war period, okay? So by the time I left school, that war was, was already five years old. It went on for 14 years, nearly three times as long as World War II. Okay, um, but I still had all this rejection going on inside of me, and I was still trying to become the best at everything that I ever did. I was aggressive. I was just a nasty little piece of work. In 1972, I was selected for the Munich Olympic Games. We weren't allowed to go because of sanctions, but we stood all, all the selections, and purely did that because I wanted to prove I was better than these people who, and so on. You know, I was just this nutcase kid growing up. But I had a girlfriend, and um, she got pregnant somehow. I'll leave that up to your imagination, but she got pregnant. And so uh, we wanted to get married. We were both 16, and her parents said no, and my parents said no. And in those days, you actually had to do what your parents told you to do, not like these days. And so we both got thrown out of school, and she got sent to a maternity home, and I got sent to the army. So I just turned 17 and had to go to the army. Now, we had to do two years national service in those days. And we did three months training, and then we were thrown straight onto the front line of a, of a war that was five years old. So we're fighting a very experienced enemy. And so I thought, OK, I need to fund this maternity. I need to fund maintenance and so maternity fees and so on. And I also need to stay alive, because we want to get married when we turn 18. So I joined the SAS, the Special Forces, purely for money. Okay, I was going to make money out of that war. I'm an entrepreneur, and I needed, you know, my whole focus was on my girlfriend and the baby. So I did that. It's quite hard to get into the SAS. Over 800 of us started, and only nine passed out. One guy was killed, so only eight of us ever got our uh, SAS colors and so on in that intake. So, but in the Rhodesian army, you weren't allowed to get killed when you were 17. You couldn't be shot until you were 18. So I did loads and loads of training. Okay, and when the SAS trains you, they are off the planet intense. They just, it's kind of a bit different to going to the Bible college. Okay, it's, it's really intense. And so I did a whole year of that. And by the time I'd finished, I was very well qualified in demolitions and all that kind of stuff. And so I got used a lot in the SAS for blowing up stuff. And most of the work I did was behind enemy lines and going after all the infrastructure and blowing it up and taking out enemy camps and things like that. Okay. So here's a quick um, 
a little forward of a book written on the Rhodesian SAS. I'm not big noting me, guys, okay? I'm just telling you all of this so you understand the aggressive background prior to becoming a Christian. So the rejection, all the stuff that was going on in my little head. Okay, so in the forward of her book, The Elite, The Story of the Rhodesian SAS, Barbara Cole wrote. And Barbara was the wife of one of the senior officers in the Rhodesian SAS. And she wrote a very famous book. Okay, Rhodesian SAS, one of the most formidable fighting forces in the world, operated almost exclusively across the border during the long, bitter Bush War, undertaking deep penetration missions against insurgents being harbored inside neighboring Mozambique and Zambia. That's on the left and right and, and the, above us. Fought against the magic and madness of a changing Africa against insuperable odds. We're outnumbered about 17 to 1 against two terrorist armies who aided and abetted, uh, who were aided and abetted by the armies of their host nations and backed by Russia and China. So nothing like taking on the whole planet. Okay, <laughs> two of the world's greatest superpowers. The role of the SAS was unique. Some of the exploits may seem far-fetched, even impossible, but then truth is often stranger than fiction. It's a history of high adventure and daring, courage and humanism, because we also went after the hearts and minds of the terrorists. Uh, be it driving through the streets of a neighboring city, walking bowlers brass down the streets of another, knocking out trains, bridges, and vital installations, or swooping out of the morning skies with the ability to hit hard and fast, attacking and taking their leave, the devastation complete, mission accomplished. There was nowhere out of reach or safe from SAS attack, and, uh, and no target was too big. In fact, they were mad. Some of the stuff they sent us to do. I'll just when you do the O group, like we do the group in the in the green room, that reminded me of that. I just think you guys are mad. You know, you want us to do that? And there's only three of us. But I tell you what, a few people can do massive stuff, and especially in the kingdom of God, when you understand your enemy and so on. Anyway, uh, 1973 on Christmas Day, a uh, little baby was born, uh, and so that was when all the maintenance and stuff kicked in. And you know, I, I was wanting to get married still, that was my whole vision, still had all the rejection inside, but at least I was working towards a cause. But shortly after that, so when, when I was in the army, we were kept, my girlfriend and I were kept incommunicado because you know, my, our, both our parents didn't want us to get married, and of course when you're in special forces, they don't want you talking to anybody, especially girlfriends, because you tell them all stories, and they don't want that. So uh, some weeks later, I was deep, and so keep in mind my girlfriend hasn't heard from me for nearly a year. And now she's had the baby all on her own in a maternity home and all that stuff. And this is in colonial Africa. Single mums pretty much frowned on, not done. Um, so I was deep inside Mozambique. I was actually blowing up a bridge. And I got a Morse-coded message from my brother, who was in the special branch of the police. So he had access to the radio system. And he, he texted me, <laughs> texted, he sent me a Morse code. <laughs> and it said there, um, your girlfriend has got married. At, the, the baby has been adopted, yeehaw, you don't have to pay maintenance anymore. So that was his approach. And of course, to me, I was just rug pulled out from underneath, completely blown away. So, you know, keep in mind all the rejection. Now, all of a sudden, there's all this anger, and I'm six weeks away from coming home because an awful long walk back from northern Mozambique on the border with Malawi. Gone again. Uh, on the border with Malawi, okay, and it takes three, there's only three of us, it takes six weeks to walk back, and you've got to be hiding. So I couldn't just. I'm going home to tidy this up. By the time I got back, okay, they had left to go and live in South Africa. You can't unmarry people. I was kind of over it, so, you know, I just had gotten over myself, and I never saw them again. So that was the end of that sort of chapter. But you know what? By then, I was an angry and aggressive kid, 
and uh, I was having too many fights, and I'm probably the only guy in history who ever got thrown out of the SAS for being too aggressive. But the squadron sergeant major called me in one day and he said, if you have another fight in this unit, I'm sending you to the School of Infantry for a year to go and train recruits. And that's the worst thing for an SAS soldier. You'd rather be shot in the leg, you know. So I, I was planning on leaving because of that attitude. And there was another unit, Special Forces unit in Rhodesia, called the Salu Scouts. And the Salu Scouts was very different to the SAS and very few people could get in. You literally needed to know the indigenous people and the bush so intimately better than they even knew it, because you had to impersonate them. And they came to me and they offered me a job, said, I believe you're having trouble with <laughs> the SAS and so on, so do you want to come and join us? And so I did, I went and joined them. And that was why I mentioned all the growing up as a white black kid when I was young, because I knew the terrorists as well as I knew themselves. But in the, in the Salu Scouts, we had to be trained to become terrorists, okay? So we, we learned to become terrorists, we did the selection course, then they sent you on what they call the dark phase, and on the dark phase, you learned to become a terrorist. You learned all the communist indoctrination. I'm fluent in any kind of communist doctrine. Okay, you had to become a political commissar. You did everything that those terrorists were doing. And then you infiltrated their ranks. So working behind enemy lines in the SA is very different to working as an enemy soldier. A bit like Daniel at the University of the Chaldeans, remember? He went to the most pagan university in the world, came out ten times better than they were, and he influenced all those emperors after that. Same deal that we had to do. And you know what? The, the um, intimate knowledge of the enemy in those days has been so important to me now in a spiritual context of understanding the Babylonian economy that plunders most uh, societies around the world and being able to recognize that and take it out along the way. Okay, we teach a lot on that. Anyway, I, I joined the Scouts and I worked with them for the next four years. Um, and I was four years in the SAS as well. So here's a little thing from their website. What happened to my time? Stole it. Pastor Dan steals your time. So in the Salu Scouts, training and operational doctrine inculcated audacity and an intimate knowledge of the enemy. This is on the Scouts Association website. We can't even exaggerate anymore because it's all there for everyone to see. At various times, for example, white Salu Scouts posed as the prisoners of black Salu Scout terrorists and were escorted into genuine terrorist strongholds where white prisoners were highly prized. At the appropriate moment, the Salu Scouts turned their weapons on the terrorists, wreaking havoc from within. So you can imagine going unarmed, usually naked, with an AK in your back, escorted into a terrorist camp. Okay, and then you've got to fight your way out of that. The classic example of audacity and an intimate knowledge of the enemy was the Salu Scouts raid on the large Zanla terrorist camp at near Zonya Pungui in August 1976, using unimogs and ferrets and all sorts of vehicles camouflaged as the terrorists. Um, the Salu Scouts drove directly into a large terrorist camp. Thousands of terrorists were in the camp. There's only 84 Salu Scouts, okay? 84 against thousands, this is a true story. Uh, preparing for morning formations when the Salu Scouts opened up with all their hardware that's listed. Estimates of the number of terrorists killed ran as high as 1,000, uh, all for five slightly wounded Salu Scouts. As the Scouts withdrew back to Rhodesia, they blew up the Pungui River Bridge, frustrating pursuit. Okay, so I'm not glorifying war or anything like that, guys. I'm just telling you the history of, of the conflict and the stuff that I went through. And this is not unusual for immigrants from Africa and my generation. We all fought the war. You either fought the war or you went to jail. All the Jehovah's Witnesses went to jail. They never fought the war. They wouldn't, uh, their faith wouldn't allow them. Okay? The rest of us went and got blown up and shot and whatnot. Okay, so um, I was in the Scouts for four years. And uh, when, that, when my eight years was finished in the Army as a regular soldier, so I was committed to do two, but I signed on regular because I wanted the pay, 
But after eight years, I left and became a civilian. And by that time, we were starting to lose the war politically. The sanctions was really starting to bite. And I knew that we were going to lose the war. We won it on the ground, but we were losing it politically. Okay, America and Britain were closing up. South Africa was cutting off the oil and so on. You can't fight a war without oil. So, um, but I was asked to come back into the military and fight as what they called an irregular, which was a mercenary, essentially. And instead of earning wages, I used to earn $360 a month as a color sergeant, which is a senior non-commissioned officer, okay, uh, $360 a month. Now, all of a sudden, they said, will you come back in as a merc? And we will give you $1,000 per kill, uh, $5,000 for a capture, $1,000 for a landmine, uh, um, $500 for an AK. So now, all of a sudden, this was huge dollars for me. And it was all I knew. It was my day job. So I went back in for the next two years. But the problem was, I was no longer fighting for the country. Okay? So th this was the issue that I struggled with when I became a Christian. Because prior to that, fighting for our country, just like the local SAS fights for, for Australia as it needs to, but I wasn't. I was fighting now for money to build my business. I had, I had a, a built up a massive, one of the biggest fishing companies in the country. Remember, I'm an entrepreneur. So I had this huge, big 60-foot trawlers and so on on Lake Kariba. And I also had two mines, mining sapphires, by that time. So I needed to fund all of this. So I went out essentially bounty hunting, going after specific terrorists that were worth more than others and so on, so that I could cull them and create and raise capital. That was my first cap raise, okay? Um, so I did that for the next two years. Then eventually the war ended and there was uh, an election and Robert Mugabe took over uh, and, and Rhodesia became Zimbabwe. That was in 1980. And then, of course, uh, the, the Rhodesian SAS left the country as a column. Wives, children, everything as an armoured column. They went and joined the South African army. So the scouts were disarmed and disbanded, and the whole population was disarmed. Okay? But I was one of the only ones that stayed behind, obviously an expert in demolitions and that sort of stuff. And I stayed behind because I had all these businesses. I sold the fishing company and I kept the two mines. But then, two years later, new socialist government, they formed a mineral marketing board, and they said, you will now sell all of your minerals to us at the government. Uh, here's the price of minerals. They put it right down. Here's the minimum wages. Put it right up and deliberately put us out of business. They wanted to nationalize the mines, as the socialists do. And of course, you know, as a, as a strong entrepreneur, that was never going to work for me. So I got a bunch of sapphires together, and I put them in a camera, and my wife, Merlin, and I came to Australia. So I met Merlin while I was in the Salu Scouts, not the same girl that uh, had my baby. But uh, so Merlin and I, we met then, and we've been married and been together ever since. Okay? So we came out to Australia on a three-month visa. My brother lived here, and he said, this is a wealthy country. Bring the sapphires. I'll help you market them. And so we wanted to bypass the Mineral Marketing Board. We didn't intend to leave Zimbabwe. That was kind of home. I'd grown up there. So we came for a three-month visa, and while I was here, I got accused of blowing up 12 Hawk jets, which belonged to the Zimbabwe Air Force, actually belonged to the British Air Force, and they were there under loan. Somebody blew them up, okay? And they were blown up before I left to come here. And uh, who's the only guy that left in Rhodesia that does that kind of stuff? And so they decided it was me, and, and I didn't do it, so don't look at me like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I didn't. <laughs> no one ever believes that bit. All right, but so uh, I, while I was here trying to peddle the sapphires, of course, there was this whole lot going on back on in Zimbabwe. 
and eventually they were around my mother's farm, they were strangling her, trying to find out when's he coming back, and they're waiting for me at the airport. And she phoned me just on the eve of us going back. She phoned me, we were about two weeks left to go home. And she managed to get a voice back and she phoned me and she said, you can't come back, they're waiting for you at the airport. And she told me all about it, and I'd, I'd seen it in the paper anyway. So I couldn't go back. So Merlin and I are now in Sydney, we tried to get into Australia. Aussie government said, no, nah, you're not a refugee, you go back out and immigrate in like everybody else. So I couldn't jump the queue. And so they said, okay, you, you've got to go out. So Merlin's plane went back to Joburg in South Africa, which is where my kids were. Our kids were with Granny, so she was safe. My, kid, my plane went straight back to Harare, where they're waiting to hang me. There's no justice system, okay, in those days. Even today, it's pretty shoddy. So no, no one's going to look after me. So I'm thinking, we parted, never knowing, not if we're going to see each other again in Sydney. Anyway, fortunately, my plane stopped in Singapore, and just to refuel, it was 1982, there was no direct flights, and I jumped off the plane and ran in and said, oh, yeah, I'm a tourist, can I come and look at Singapore? And they said, yep, everyone gets two weeks, and they let me in. So there, I had two weeks reprieve, okay, from having to go back and get stretched. And so I took off to a commercial diving company, and I knew there was an ex-New Zealand Special Forces guy there as the ops manager. And so I went to him, and I just lied my way into a job. Okay, I knew nothing about commercial saturation diving, it didn't matter, I just said, hey Merv, you know, I'm the best diver on the planet, you know, can I have a job? And he just looked at me and he knew I was talking rubbish, it was a, wasn't a Christian, okay, you can tell fibs when you're not Christians, it's, that's what <laughs> repenting's all about. But anyway, I lied my way into the job and, and he said, you can't dive, you get in the workshop, I know what, and, but you know what, because we were desperate, all the Rhodesians were desperate, we were all disciplined because we were all ex-military, they loved us in Southeast Asia, we did anything we were told, and they said, okay, you can work in the workshop. So I got a job in the workshop, and that to me suddenly, I didn't have to go back. Now my vision is how do I get my wife and kids out of Africa before Mugabe gets one of them, and then I, I have to go back. So I just needed to do anything desperate to make money. You don't make money in the workshop, and so eventually I learned to dive. I just read all the manuals, tried on all the, the helmets and stuff, stripped and assembled, figured them all out, worked it all out, and as soon as I thought I could dive, don't forget this is saturation diving, you're on the water for 35 days at a time, did very deep. And so eventually I, I said to Merv, hey, I think I can go out now. And he still didn't want me to go, but it, all of a sudden the guy came in and he went out the next day. And I said, Merv, how come he's gone out? He said, he's a medic. We have to have a medic in the saturation chambers. I said, I'm a medic. Everyone in the SA is a medic. And this time I was telling the truth. And he said, I never thought of that. Okay, you can go next. So that was it. The next job, the next SAT system that went out, I was off to Japan. And for the next thing, you know, 400 feet below the Sea of Japan, minus two degrees, it's so cold, it's underwater, and you're down for 35 days at a time, and I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I was earning a thousand US dollars a day. And so all of a sudden I had this incredible income coming in, and I was able to start funding getting my family out of Africa. But you know what, it was one of the most dangerous jobs in the world, it was much worse than the SAS, simply because you had to rely on everybody on the top side to keep you alive, you weren't relying on your own skills. And I had no idea what I was doing. And when you're down there, you're committed. You can't come up. It takes four days to decompress. Okay, so if you come up more than 60 feet, your blood fizzes like opening a Coke or a beer, a beer rather. Okay, so at my very first dive, I got jumped on by a giant octopus, a massive mongrel thing. Its head was bigger than my helmet, and it just wrapped around me. And I was shrieking and yelling like a blooming granny. And uh, all of them are laughing on the top side because they're watching it on video, but I can't come up. Okay, you deal with it down there. Another time my hot water system turned off and you've got about four minutes with no hot water and I had to be revived because they didn't believe me. You can talk to the top side. You sound like Mickey Mouse talking, but you can still talk. Everything that could go wrong went wrong, but I still had to live with it. 
And eventually I managed to get my family out of Africa and then three years later we got into Australia and we moved to Perth. Uh, we just chose Perth off a postcard because everybody was windsurfing on the postcard. Said, let's, let's hop in there. Merlin said, awesome, who cares? So we landed in Perth. I bought a motorcycle business just because I like motorbikes and knew nothing about retail. We just, that's good, let's do that, okay. So we did that. And it was while I had the motorcycle business that I started having to go to church. Having to go to church because my wife was a Christian. And she was always a Christian. And she, you know what it's like? If, if the wife wants to do stuff, kind of like it gets done. And so I loved her and I wanted to please her, so I went to church. But I never believed a word I heard. I couldn't cope, you know, I couldn't cope with creation. I couldn't cope with Noah's Ark, all this kind of stuff. For me, having come out of, the, when I was in the Salu Scouts, I took over the tracking wing, which is the survival training school and tracking school. And you know what? We used to make poisons to kill terrorists. We used to go right down to the molecular level and poison the water, water holes and kill lots of terrorists. And so I, I understood evolution. I didn't understand creation. So for me, this was a big challenge. And obviously, the pastor knows that. And all the visiting ministries that come through, God flicks them an email and says, there, Hodgson, he's not saved. So every time they do an altar call, they glare at me. And there's a little squeeze on my hand, and I'm pulling it away because I didn't want to be a Christian. You know, but it was, it was worth it because the Christians were gullible. I could sell them motorbikes, so it was all going pretty good. <laughs> but, you know, one day Reinhard Bonnke was coming to town. You guys know Reinhard Bonnke? You've heard of him? So he's a big shot evangelist from Africa. He's a German dude, but he died last year, I think. Anyway, he's coming to town. He's going to do this crusade in Perth at the massive entertainment center. And Merlin's working on me and working on me. She's a worse terrorist than anyone that I ever got involved with, <laughs> wearing me down. That's what terrorism does. And so she said, you know, you're going to love this guy. You'll identify with him. Please come, you know. And, this, and I didn't want to go because I didn't want to be seen in public with these limp-wristed Christians, especially by the motorcycle fraternity. So eventually she wore me down and I said, okay, I'll go with you. But here's the rules, okay? When we go, we're not going in any of our company cars. We're going in a civilian car. I don't want the bike, bikies to see me with you. Okay, we're going to go late. We go last. We go in last. We stand by the door. When the lights come on, we just make swastikas out of there and we're gone. And she said, I don't care. I just want you to come and listen. So we did that. And we sat right at the back and it's massive auditorium. It's pitch black in there. And Reinhardt's got one light in his dial and he can't see anything. And he's busy going and going, doing his gig. And then all of a sudden he just stops out of the blue. And we're sitting right by the door. And he says, up there. And he's a very assertive sort of dude, he's, you know, and he just points up the German accent, up there. And he says, there's a young executive, so this is 1987, there's a young executive in the motor industry. Uh, and he said, you're here under duress tonight. And he said, the Lord has knocked on your door many times. And tonight, this could be the last time. So come now, come, come. And he wants me to come down there. I looked at Merlin and said, geez, do you think he's talking about me? <laughs> And she said, well, what do you think? And I was thinking, how can you be so dumb and breathe still, you know? <laughs> anyway, I said, it's a setup. Your disciples are down there and have dubbed me in. And she said, why don't you go and find out? So we were having this dialogue and everyone said, come on. And the lights have all come on. So I went trotting down because I think I've been set up. Everyone's clapping. I forgot that I'm supposed to be clandestine. But when I got there, there was nobody uh, from our church. Okay, or from Merlin's church. I was just a guest. Anyway, that's how I got saved. But you know what? I never became a Christian at that point because even though I kind of got saved, I had never accepted forgiveness from the Lord, which is why that song was so <laughs> poignant there. Strange coincidence. 
But at the end of the day, you know, for the next sort of three years, we lived in Perth. And I was, I sort of knew I had to stop thumping people and stuff like that and kind of calm down. But I never really in my heart felt any different because I'd shot people for money to fund my company. Okay, even though they were terrorists and they were shooting back, it was still, the actual motive wasn't quite right, you know. So that, I never thought I would ever get forgiven by God for, for doing that. And, you know, I'd heard pastors preaching all over the place now because I've been to church for like four years. And, you know, God can forgive the liar and the cheat. And I used to look at my kids and think, those little sods are lying and cheating all the time. Of course God's going to forgive them, you know. And then, you know, God can forgive the alcoholic and the drug addict. I looked at Australia and said, half of people are alcoholics in this country. Of course he's going to forgive them. He'd have no one left. But, you know, I shot people for money. He's never going to forgive me. And, and that was my biggest issue. I never accepted forgiveness, okay? Even though God was offering it, I never accepted it because I thought I was too bad. Anyway, later on, I sold the bike shop and I moved up to the Atherton Tablelands. And Pastor Dan, it's his fault, he was preaching one day. And he's preaching all about Paul, the Apostle Paul. And I listened to this and I thought, wow, okay. And I went home and I opened the Bible and I, I read all about Paul. And I saw, well, this dude got so forgiven. He wrote half the New Testament. And it said there in 1 Timothy 1.15, here, here is a true statement that should be accepted without question. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So Paul's saying he's the worst. And I'm comparing him to me. I mean, what makes him worse than me? Like he's some, you know, Pharisee, you know, he's working for God. Uh, I was kind of working against God, okay? And then he goes on, but I was given mercy so that in me Christ Jesus could show that he, that he has patience without limit. Christ showed his patience with me, the worst of all sinners. He wanted me to be an example for those who would believe in him and have eternal life. So if you can be so bad that you can get so saved, you can be an example for the worst and all the others, that's what he was doing with Paul. Okay? And Paul recognized that. And so when I looked at what Paul was doing, he was hunting down and killing Christians. He was holding the jersey, the jumpers, while other people stoned them. He deliberately went after killing Christians. That was his intention. And I thought, well, I never did that. I never went after Christians, so I'm not as bad. I never stopped to ask if they were Christians when we were in the middle of a gunfight. <laughs> but the point being, I realized that, what Paul was talking about. And he was much worse than me. Okay? And then it was at that point that I kind of, I felt it was like kind of having a hot shower. That warm water just came over me, and I began to accept the forgiveness. And just like we sang that amazing grace, those chains were released. And I became a Christian. I just kind of calmed down. The rejection that had been there all those years, it suddenly left because I was never parented. I never had the loving thing of, you know, of parents. So now all of a sudden I had that. It was a whole different world. And I just I, I mellowed completely. I didn't have to compete with everybody. I didn't have to you know, thump everybody. I knew how to learn how to turn the other cheek very reluctantly, but I learned how to do it. Okay, and this peace, this shalom just came over me. And I was able then to apply that to my family and bring up a family that we have now, you know, which is five adult kids, um, all of them successfully married, uh, nine grandchildren, one great-grandchild, and, and we get together for the most massive bonfires. We burn half the planet down just to say hello. Every major milestone in the family, when there's like 15 of you, it's every month because there's a birthday every month. And, but it, the point is it's exactly the opposite of the upbringing that I had. Okay, simply because there was this love of the Lord involved and I understood even without having the parenting I needed to provide this uh, through to my own family. Okay, so that's how it all happened for me. 
Um, I went on, uh, when I was on the Tablelands, I learned about the concept of assignment, doing God's will, God's way, which is what we spoke about last night, and how to grow our businesses to fund the local church in return for a spiritual covering, and then to fund our assignments and so on. And that is what has led to the growth of Paladin Corporation, which is a, a large group of 32 companies and trusts around the world, and having massive influence around the world, as mentioned earlier, in the White House and various governments and economic summits and so on. Okay? But it all pivoted out of that moment when I actually accepted God and his forgiveness and understood what Jesus died for and why. Okay? So that's my little war stories for today, guys. I hope it wasn't too boring for you and I hope you can go past the entertainment side of it. And I hope you don't think I'm too evil and ask me why I was let into your country. I'm actually good for the country, I think. <laughs> okay. Um, I would imagine that some of you guys are not Christians, are not saved, so to speak. And so I would like to address those of you who are not saved. You know what? It's, it's the most massive change that you can make in your life. I've done some weird and wonderful things. I've only sped read and skipped the surface of the stuff that I've done. But the most amazing thing that ever happened to me wasn't the octopus, wasn't getting blown up. I was blown up. I was blinded in both eyes. My ears were blown out. I, I couldn't see for months. All sorts of things have happened to me, crazy stuff, and I've only just touched on the surface, but the most spectacular thing was actually get understanding the forgiveness of God. It wasn't even the original salvation, it was accepting the salvation in the end. And I just encourage you, uh, ladies and gents, for those of you who might not have experienced that, it is the rest of your life. It, it is the ticket to eternal life. It's a much bigger, bigger thing than just the individual. Salvation is the most incredible thing in your life. Thank you for listening. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. This is the beginning of a life-changing journey. We encourage you to tell someone about your decision and pray and read the Bible every day. We also recommend attending a church in your local area. We have many City Point Church services across Brisbane and the world this Sunday. You can find out more about our service times and locations at citypointchurch.com. We are so excited to see you there.